Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to remind you that the fight for 2024 starts today. Not tomorrow, not next week, right now. Go to jointheunion.us and help expand on the 62,000 of your fellow Americans who have already joined to help preserve democracy. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Tara McGill, founder and publisher of the pro-democracy digital news organization, Courier, and CEO of Good Information, Inc., a civic incubator that invests in immediate solutions to counter disinformation online. Prior to that, she was a political strategist who led multi-million dollar digital advertising and marketing programs for dozens of nonprofits and political groups, including Priorities USA, Next Gen Climate, and President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. She also played a leading role in the democratic digital and narrative strategy that led to President Biden's victory in 2020, producing some of the most talked about ads of the election cycle. I think we know something about that. Today, she's coming to us from her home in Portsmouth, Rhode Island. Tara, welcome to the show. Hi, Reed. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, too. It's been a long time. Okay, so let's first and foremost, before we talk about Courier, give us a sense where you are now you've spent a career in democratic politics probably still very involved in that but what made you make the jump from straight politics to information and combating disinformation so i actually started my career in journalism and then made a pivot out i was at 60 minutes and i worked on a few frontline documentaries i went to journalism school at nyu so i had always wanted to be a journalist from a very young age and then I covered the 2008 presidential election uh, when I was at 60 Minutes, and I became very captivated by then-Senator Obama's candidacy and kind of put my journalist hat on and went to D.C. where I had no relationships, no contacts after that election because I wanted to be part of the change he was bringing or claimed to bring to Washington. And I ended up making a pivot then into politics, and I was one of the first staffers hired for his digital team for his reelection campaign in Chicago in 2011, after a very short stint in the U.S. Senate working for my home state, Senator Jack Reed. So anyhow, that led to the long sort of resume that you just uh, listed out from my political career. But I feel like I've described myself in the past as sort of, I believe that you have to affect change from the inside and the outside of structures. I have always in my career been fairly critical and outspoken about the flaws and deficiencies in the Democratic Party infrastructure, their reliance and gross dependency on consultants who aren't always incentivized to innovate or change behavior or their playbooks. And so it was a natural sort of progression for me to start my own organization after the 2016 election, which was acronym, which was a 501c4. 
And in the work that we did at Acronym, which you you mentioned, we ran large digital advertising programs in support of progressive causes and candidates. And pretty much the bulk of our work was trying to get Donald Trump out of the White House for four years, which we were very pleased to play a small role in achieving. A lot of that work was focused on how do we better reach and engage people that aren't politically active, that aren't consuming a lot of political news or information. They aren't voting regularly because my longstanding belief has been that the more people that vote, the more people that have access to voting, the more people that feel informed and empowered to vote, the more likely this country will go in a more progressive direction because of how diverse and young, frankly, more progressive people are in this country, but they tend to be marginalized or disenfranchised. And so a lot of our work was focused on how do we reach more of these people and how do we get them engaged? And something that we found was that political advertising was having a decreasing impact generally. (laughs) There's a lot of diminishing returns, billions of dollars have spent on it. So we really set out to try to figure out is there a more sustainable way to build trust and relationships with these audiences and really sort of do what the right wing media did to build their infrastructure. But that's really where we landed on a model and a gap that really needed filling, which was local news and local information, and doing that in a transparent way that was in line with our values, but was able to really build uh, long-standing sustainable trust with audiences that don't engage with politics to try to get them more engaged, informed, and participating, frankly, in our democracy. There's a lot there. So let me take it piece by piece, not necessarily in order. So on the sort of status quo that you mentioned in the context of the Democratic Party, the consultant class, Look, I used to be a consultant. I don't know what I am now. I really don't know what name there is a name for me now or us now. But it is true to see that, and I want to get your sense of this, is there is a dramatic desire for, I'm going to call it the establishments of media, politics, finance, whatever, to believe that the world is as they either A, wanted it to be or remember it when they had it best if that makes sense. And what most frustrates me, you talked about, you know, I always say, if you really think buying a thousand points of television in Grand Rapids is going to win you the race, you can believe that all you want. It's just not true. And what I think that we're facing is, you know, when we finally come through this, and I think that we will, and the forces of pro-democracy will come through this victorious, is the biggest change in paradigms, dynamics, economics, life, policy, sociology, everything, probably since the end of World War II. And it's like, there are a few of us, like I call us our friendly neighborhood Cassandras, like the world is not the way you think it is. And if you don't get off your ass and open your eyes, it's not going to be what you want, right? We have the opportunity, Tara, but like, it's like, maybe I'd rather have something I wasn't really, really a huge fan of, but I understand, or maybe I have to get off my ass and actually help create it. But if I have to help create it, I don't get everything I want all at once. Or you and I have to have conversations, right? Specifically, you and me have to have conversations. People who came from dramatically different parts of the world, both growing up, educationally, politically, whatever it is. And then the other part, too, is the community piece, which I think is so important, which is, you know, one of our partner organizations, Mi Vecino, literally means my neighbor in Spanish, in South Florida. And they hired people on salary for the entire election cycle, not for, you know, the last eight weeks. And when they went into a particular neighborhood in South Florida, the person they sent into that neighborhood was someone who actually lived there. And so if there wasn't an inherent trust, there wasn't an immediate distrust, if that makes sense. And as you talked about too, 
I had John Della Volpe on the podcast this last episode, and he does so much work on Generation Z, which is it's all about for I guess uh, I want to put it to you this way for a generation who has lived natively digitally on camera their entire lives. Right. Even with all of the filters and silliness and everything else, authenticity is everything. It's the alpha and the omega for them. That's exactly right. It's funny. Um, one of the frontline documentaries that I was an associate producer on a long, long time ago was about digital natives. It was about the psychosocial impacts of growing up on the internet because it was very, very new at that time. So I consider myself a digital native. I am a peak millennial, but I started on AOL Instant Messenger when I was 10 years old. So I do remember a time before the internet and I do remember a time before I had a cell phone as an additional limb on my body appendage. But, you know, those memories are fleeting. There's not very many of them. And I was a child. Gen Z does not have any of those memories. They were born into a world where technology was an everyday part of their existence for the most part, right? Unless maybe their parents work for big tech and they prevent them from being on it. Right. I know things the irony. We don't. Right. Yes, exactly. But it does. It fundamentally changes your psychology and your behavior. It also changes later generations who have adopted constantly using their smartphones, their behavior in ways we don't know yet or understand, right? And yet, for Gen Z and younger millennials who don't remember a time in their life before they had access to the internet or social media, they see the world through those prisms. And it's very difficult for older generations who still see the world through the prisms and through the types of media and relationships to media they had before social media, or if they never really adopted that, they're living in very, very different realities. They have a different relationship to information. They have a different relationship to their own personas and how they exist in the digital world. It's really fascinating. It's something that I wish like we all understood better for better and for worse, but I have so much hope and I am so inspired by the younger generations because they have access to they understand more so than older generations the power and agency they have with these tools and they use them accordingly. They don't just see it as portals to information or other worlds or other communities or, or kind of exposure to other things and people and experiences. They actually see these as tools that they can make change with, whether it's in their local friend group community or frankly, the world. And that's really powerful. And I think that's a good way to think about it, too, because I remember in high school, right, we had the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, you could go up to the journalism office, like where, you know, yours truly was co-editor of the high school newspaper. <laughs> and we had some, you know, what it was, uh, Prodigy or one of those things, right? Like it sat in the corner. Nobody knew what the hell to do with it. And I remember my grandmother watched Dan Rather in the CBS Evening News religiously every night if you bothered her between 6 and 6 30 while dan rather was on ooh, watch out but now you know as i the listeners can't see this but i'm holding up my iphone right and every piece of human knowledge ever created is available to them so i think they're smarter than we are which maybe for me anyway is not that high a bar but also they have all the information ready so they can go now we have another problem we're going to talk about in a second which with mis and disinformation but they can go and check your bullshit immediately they can find out who you are what you are who funds you everything else they want to know if tara's talking to me what's her story if reed's talking to me what's his story i'll make the judgment but if you're going to tell me you do something you believe in something like i'm going to figure it out because if you're full of it i'm going to turn you off 
That's right. Well, and the other thing that's translated and I think just like blown up in a way that we didn't really understand, but it's always been the case with any form of media is how personality driven it is, right? Like you build trust with people. People follow people much more than they do brands, right? They are less trusting of brands. They're less trusting of institutions. And so they trust people and they trust people to your earlier point when they feel like those people are being authentic, authentically themselves, whatever that looks like, that is what they are going to identify with and trust and then listen to. And so people and personalities have an enormous amount of power. Content creators today have an enormous amount of power over really shaping the hearts and minds of the next generation. And I do think that institutions, including the political parties, don't really frankly understand that in a way that they can influence it at scale. I think they're getting smarter, but I still think that they are seeing the world and how information moves in fairly traditional, outdated formats, as opposed to thinking about how actually are we integrating our values into the communities that we seek to inform and educate and doing that through trusted messengers and personalities and not just poll tested messages or AB tested messages that make it their way into ads or increasingly, you know, memes and social media content. But it's still in many ways, I think, missing the larger point. And I do think that the right, again, has just been savvier about this. They really have always cultivated personalities and focused on investing in cult of personality because that is really how you influence people. And of course, they use it in a lot of bad ways and use it to spread a lot of disinformation and lies. But there is something to be said just about being able to really, really understand how you build trust with new audiences and especially younger generations and tapping into that in ways that are authentic. Well, and I think seeing the turnout for Gen Z this past election just a few weeks ago was very heartening. But the one thing, you know, that I immediately said was, this is great. This is great. We want to see, you know, the under 40 crowd right, is definitely making their voices heard, and we need to ensure that. But also, like, just to speak of the Democratic Party, like, one, don't take it for granted that they did it because they suddenly somehow think the Democratic Party is the end-all, be-all. And second, don't think that just because they turned out in terrific numbers to save our bacon in 22 means that they'll necessarily do the same in 2024. It doesn't mean they won't, but to your point, like, if you've now said, okay, we know what they care about, they care about abortion. Okay. Well, yeah, of course they care about abortion, right? Right. Well, and they're not voting on party lines, right? To your point about voting on these issues, they also, they want to see results. That's the thing I'm most heartened about, about the most activist Gen Z folks and organizers that are out there. They want accountability. They understand the power of their vote and they want to see results. They're not thinking about themselves as like, oh, am I going to go R or D next cycle? Am I going to go like full down ballot? It's like, I want legislation that prevents my friends from getting killed in the classroom or my younger sister from getting killed in her classroom by a gunman. Like, I want to know that I'm going to have the right to get an abortion and that I'm going to have a right to get birth control and plan out my life and go to college and go to grad school and have a career, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that they are really results driven. I do think that there is an inherent association because of the stark contrast of the parties of what party stands more on the side of the issues that a lot of Gen Z want, right? But I agree with you entirely that the Democratic Party cannot take it for granted that these are their people forever if they don't show them those results. Right. And then you talked about the, you know, personality driven and, and authenticity. The thing that Donald Trump did best was be that personality driven candidate who created a cult of authenticity 
out of whole cloth. He's never been authentic about anything, right? Even when he said, you're fired, the producer said, you do this. He just wanted to play at it, right? I mean, we think about how even when he was in the White House, right, or what you heard about his businesses, the last thing in the world he ever wanted to do was fire somebody personally. He wanted to torture them into quitting because he was such a pansy. He didn't want to fire somebody face to face, right? But now millions, tens of millions of people are drawn in. He's just like me, right? I know people just like him. He's my idea of what a rich guy should be, right? And so let's turn that into, you know, weirdness, conspiracies, misinformation, disinformation. Is a, he's existed as long as humans could figure out how one human could figure out how to pull the wool over another human's eyes, right? But now we see it's an industry, right? It's an industry for power and for profit. It uses as its profit, PH, not FI, a guy like Donald Trump. And so talk to us a little bit about how you're seeing that world, because for all of the talk of Gen Z and younger millennials and the authenticity, we're now seeing that it's the Gen Xers like me and my cohort and the boomers and the last of the silent generations who are getting more and more pulled in to the opposite, right? We're just, it's just like everything's twisting, turning, pulling, all the dynamics socially, politically, economically, and everything are all in flux at one time. So give us a sense of how you see that part of the world. Yeah, we are in another incredibly disruptive moment right now. Like right now, this moment in terms of media and information, it's very hard. I, like, I don't, I don't want to kind of put a forecast out there because I, I think we know too little about how this is going to shake out. But just take, for instance, like right now, the most powerful, largest social media platforms, including Meta and Twitter, are going through enormous upheaval and transition, right? So Meta and Facebook just laid off 11,000 people. They have been tweaking their algorithm to try to compete with TikTok while Mark builds the metaverse, whatever that is and whatever that will ever be. But that is truly the most powerful information distribution platform in the world. And it is by the day losing that power that reach that audience market share and influence, which is a fascinating transition. They're also not getting the amount of play and, and coverage and scrutiny that they are used to getting and hate because Elon Musk has bought Twitter for $44 billion and is as every single day, we're all just holding our breath wondering if it's going to turn on when we open up our phones and click. And that platform influences the influencers in a massive way. And that's undergoing enormous transition. So the most powerful channels that move information both to the masses and to the elites who really drive a lot of the mainstream media conversation um, and priorities of what they cover and how are are in a moment of like they are all sort of teetering on the edge and we're not really sure how it's going to shake out. Meanwhile, mainstream media is increasingly only talking to a very small percentage of the population of high information, educated and wealthier elites and have the same kind of navel gazing problem that we were talking about, about kind of political institutional folks and operatives where they are, they live in their own echo chamber. They don't understand the world outside of it. They don't listen to people outside of it. So it's like, how could the red wave have not come or X, Y, Z things, right? And so we have a real crisis, right? Right now in terms of information and those vacuums that have been left by sort of corporate and mainstream media that does tend to abide by traditional journalistic standards and ethics only focused on a small population of paying consumers and elites and then of course what's happening with social media where most people are getting their information today and the disruption there 
it leaves a lot of room and openings for bad actors, malicious actors to be able to infiltrate the spaces and the platforms where people are, especially when there's no accountability or regulation or scrutiny that's happening, to be able to seed their information, to be able to essentially move population's understanding of the world in specific ways. And there's no one coming to save us from this right now. Let me ask you to to lean back on your experience at 60 Minutes for a second. And this might be an unfair question, which is, what is it about the right-wing media ecosystem? And it is big, it is growing, it is relentless, it's well-funded, just like everything on that end of the scale, that makes traditional media so susceptible to either by accident, by osmosis, or just by exhaustion, willing to take some of that crap and sort of push it out without the appropriate qualifiers? Well, I have so many theories about this. One, I believe that the mainstream media is constantly sitting in a defensive crouch because they have been called for decades the liberal media, and they espouse things like objectivity and nonpartisan and non-biased right values and accolades for their institutions. And they project all of this because they want to be trusted and they have earned that trust over 100 years in this country. And yet being called that has meant them feel as though they need to prove at every single turning point that they are not in bed with Democrats. They are not a puppet of the Democratic Party. They are not the liberal conspiracy. And so they need to also establish relationships and trust with people in the Republican Party and on the conservative right. And the way that they have done that has essentially meant this adherence um, and essentially like religious (laughs) adherence to both sidesism which is lifting up lies out of the liar's mouths with equivalent airtime or word count as factual statements from people on the other side of the political spectrum, which that is them no longer doing their job of being the arbiters of truth. Instead, they are just using themselves and their publications as platforms for, well, you guys do what you want with this, right? You can decide what's a lie or what's true or where you align yourselves with. And so there's no accountability anymore in journalism. And that's a huge problem. So I think the defensive posture is one reason. I also believe their business incentives. I think I see the world through incentives, right? Every humans are motivated by specific incentives. We live in a capitalist economy. It is fairly unregulated. People have to make money to be able to afford to eat, to be able to afford to have families and make sure those families can have better lives for them. And so When you think about the incentives of for-profit media in a disruptive media ecosystem where Google and Facebook have cannibalized the old advertising industry that used to let news organizations exist and be sustainable, they have to find ways to make money. What are they going to do? What have they found that they found worked? People who are willing to pay through paywalls, which is a tiny, tiny, wealthy percentage of the population. And so they have abandoned their kind of moral code of we exist to inform the public in order to stay in business. And so that's another reason. I think another reason why they take the bait is because there is not anyone else that is feeding them narrative as often, as consistently, and as boldly as right-wing media right? There is no left media because we have this defensive posture mainstream media and we have this really, really powerful, dominant and very strategic right-wing media. So they drive the conversation because I also think that we've seen journalists just get really fucking lazy. Before we recorded today, I was looking at on Twitter, such as it is, that there were a bunch of White House reporters, current and former, who were beside themselves about the fact that maybe the Biden White House wasn't totally upfront about the fact that Vogue got to cover the president's granddaughter being married at the White House. 
My jaw dropped to the floor when I read Ashley Parker's tweet. Read, it dropped to the floor. And so, you know, well, they all lie, right? The difference is, is that the Trump administration lied boldly and the Biden White House is too cute by half. And I responded, right? You know, lying is not okay, but these lies are not comparable. Okay, yeah. Should they have just been honest? Yes, they should have. And they should have just taken the White House press corps being pissed off that they were being shut out of a family event taking place at the White House. This is not the 2020 Republican National Convention being staged on the South Lawn of the goddamn White House. Right. Like and I'm like, are you kidding me? The man lied and 700,000 Americans died, right? You're telling me these things are the same? I was just going to say, this is not saying that COVID-19 is a hoax (laughs) on national to live television. It is not the same. And honestly, I thought that those tweets were those reporters being too cute by half because it is absurd. And I think that they were poking at controversy because, again, they come at it from this entitled posture of like, we are the truth tellers. We are the ones that hold all people accountable, all people in positions of power accountable. And that is really dangerous to create that false equivalence. Really dangerous. So I had uh, a couple of months ago, I had a guy named Andy Campbell on the podcast and Andy wrote a book about the Proud Boys and he writes for the Huffington Post or HuffPost, whatever they call it now. And he said he would interview Enrico Terrio. And he said, this is a guy who lies for a living. So when he would quote Terrio, he would say, I'm about to quote Enrico Terrio. He is a liar. Enrico Terrio quote, that was a lie. (laughs) Right. Right. This was the lie that he told. Yeah, he's about to lie to you. Here's the lie. Here's the fact that he lied, right? But can you imagine the Times or the Post or the LA Times or the Dallas Morning News, any reporter putting all those qualifiers into an otherwise straight news story because they would think it was insane to do that? Well, I can imagine it because CNN started doing it. And then Chris took it over and now they're getting rid of all of the truth tellers and that mandate to actually call liars what they are and also not give them platforms. Like we have to stop giving them oxygen. Yes, they have their own platforms. They're going to continue to have influence on them. But the second that you give them a platform and you don't call them a liar to their face when they are lying and make it clear to your audience, you have contributed. You have given them more reach. You have given them more legitimacy and given their lies credibility. Well, and let me just say, as someone who used to work in Republican politics and listen, I mean, beating the liberal media, the lamestream media over the head was such an easy trope. It's effective. And we were still friends with the reporters. They got the joke. But here was the other part, too. How many Republicans from the presidency to dog catcher won in spite of the mainstream media? Right. Voters understood what they were getting. They were fine with it. Right. George W. Bush doesn't get elected if the liberal media is so powerful that he can't get elected. Donald Trump sure as shit can't get elected if the liberal media is so powerful. Right. But in fact, with Trump and we'll see it again in the coming two years. Right. What will happen? Not that he will be called out for every lie, but because he draws so many eyeballs and so many clicks, they'll cover him like Jeff Zucker left the 15 minute, you know, picture of an empty tarmac and a flatbed truck with the press sitting on it, right? Because people were waiting, right? And it's just like, remember in the movie, Private Parts about Howard Stern, people listen for 30 minutes. How can that be? You know, the people that love him want to see what he has to say next. People that hate him, they want to see what he's going to say next. It's the same thing. That's right. Well, and I'm not saying that it isn't newsworthy what Elon Musk is doing, but think about the power 
the media is giving him right now by covering him and his every tweet as obsessively as they did Trump because he is a bombastic, unpredictable, incredibly wealthy and thus powerful individual. Like, I mean, people are captivated, right? They can't turn away from it. It's like, are we watching another train crash in slow motion? And that, I mean, it's it's when it bleeds, it leads, right? Like the media's obsession is also what I can't stand and what frustrates me about the media is that they obfuscate their responsibility that they have because they are contributing. They are giving people more power by the coverage that they give them. And I don't believe that that's a filter because they have business incentives and it keeps eyeballs on their on their platforms and on their content. So two things on Musk. One is I saw something in some outlet. I'm not sure there's so many now. It said like, who's winning the Elon Musk primary? And I'm like, let's be clear. Elon Musk has no political constituency, right? I don't care what anybody says, right? He doesn't. Tucker Carlson has a political constituency. Steve Bannon has a political constituency. But Elon Musk is an overgrown, overwealthy toddler. The other part, too, was Hakeem Jeffries, who might be the next Democratic leader in the House, was doing an interview. And somebody asked him about Elon Musk and putting Donald Trump back on Twitter. And Jeffries gave this perfect answer. I don't care. I don't care what either of them do. I don't care what either of them say. They're both crazy. They both lie about everything. I'm not going to spend any time thinking about that. And it was the perfect answer because he's like, you know what? Like, I know what I got to do. And it's not worrying about what those two idiots are doing on a daily basis. I'm going to keep track of it. Got to keep track of it. Got to understand it. Right. But I got a job to do over here, which I thought was brilliant. So speaking of brilliant, tell me about Courier, how you started it, how it works and where our folks can find more information about it. Sure, absolutely. So Courier is a left-leaning news organization that I started in 2019. We opened our first newsroom in Virginia called The Dogwood in 2019, and then we launched newsrooms in six additional states in 2020, Arizona, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Florida. Oh, those are interesting states. <laughs> they are, and then in 2021, <laughs> last year, when we restructured the company, I stepped down from uh, my seat at Akron and my old nonprofit to run Career Full Time. We made our first acquisition of Iowa Starting Line, a very reputable progressive newsroom in Iowa, bringing us to eight newsrooms across the country. We are different than any other news organization in three kind of primary ways. The first one, we have a very specific audience we care about that is not being intentionally reached by other good information platforms, if you will. And those are what we describe as passive news consumers, people who primarily get their news and information on social media today. They don't vote regularly. And yet we believe that a significant percentage of this population actually holds and shares progressive values. And so this is actually most Americans when you do the math. It's not a small group, but they are the ones I was talking about before that have been really left behind by paywall news and are susceptible to being reached with a lot of bad information on social media where they spend their time. And so our audience focus is the first thing that differentiates us. We intentionally target these audiences. We try to learn as much about them, build their trust, not to manipulate them, but to be able to get them informed in ways that are relevant to their lives. Which brings me to the second key difference with us and other news organizations, we understand media consumption habits today. And so all of our journalists are trained to actually produce their reporting and their storytelling in formats that are easily skimmable, digestible, sticky. So when you are scrolling on your Instagram, your Facebook, your TikTok, it stops you in your tracks and it conveys the factual information in a way that is entertaining, compelling, and relevant to you and your local community. 
So it's a lot of vertical video. It's a lot of graphics. It's very little print. We did a lot of testing. This audience does not read articles. All of those articles reporters love reading and writing, they're not getting read. The headlines themselves were the things that were most informative and persuasive in all of our testing. So you got seven words, if that. That's it. You've got seven words and you got an image. You got an image in seven words or you've, you know, you can, you can do a lot with video these days. So we do. And then the third thing that differentiates us, and this really gets to like the crux of why I got into journalism and why I left it initially, is I got into journalism because I wanted to affect real world change. When I was in journalism, I hated that your success was essentially publishing something and then maybe winning an award from it or the respect of your peers. I wanted to know that it made a difference in the world. We measure the impact of our news coverage on voter turnout. We specifically want to know if people that are consuming our content on social media are more or less likely to vote after they have received that content. And so we measure that in-field experiments, randomized control treatment experiments that we run under our boosted news programs. And we have found in every single time we've run the experiment that we do increase turnout among this audience that does not vote regularly, simply by delivering them local, relevant, and left-leaning journalism. Well, and the audience has heard me. They know there's certain things that I'm always going to talk about. I'm an old advanced man. I'm bald. I went to Texas. But also that the races closest to your home are the ones that actually affect your life the most. Mayor races, city council races, county commission races, school board. Look, where I live, we just had a one humdinger of a school board race. Had nothing to do with any of the craziness you saw out there. Just, you know, one candidate <laughs> played super freaking dirty and got crushed for it. Right. Because it's a small town that I live in. I would call it an enclave more than a town. But the point is, is that like, you know, it's one of those things where like, you know, both the candidates. Right. That's right. It, they're your neighbors. They're your friends. You're, they're your colleagues. I mean, you want to know what's going on in the world. Like go to next door for a few minutes. Right. Like you want to you think Twitter's a cesspool. Spend some time on next door. All right. So you're in these states. So how do you go from having a is it a state bureau and then your reporters like, do they pack their reporter's notebook and they get in the car and they drive around? Like, I, I, I don't want to diminish it. Please don't get me wrong. No, no, no. So it's a little bit of old traditional reporting like you just described, and it's a lot of new, which is using the tools available to us. But yeah, every single newsroom has three to five full-time reporters who live within the communities that they are reaching. We are a fully remote organization. And so we can for, you know, in Pennsylvania, we have reporters all across that state. And so they're not all just in the state house. They're not focused just on the state house. One of our mandates of our reporting is that our goal is to really localize and humanize what's happening in Washington in your state house. So we believe that traditional political reporting at the state and national level has done a massive disservice. It has alienated most people from caring about or trusting politics or politicians because reporters are not incentivized to talk about the good that government or elected officials do when they do good, which leads to mistrust of these institutions. You need to have checks and balances. You need to have accountability. There's a lot of journalism that does that. You also need to talk about the good that government does. People have to know, right? And I think there was a real shift because there was such an unbelievable spike in interest and appetite and searching for local information during the pandemic because every state, every county had different rules, right? It was different than what the federal government was saying at their press conferences. And so really, we saw enormous growth for our newsrooms. And we focus, again, on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and email newsletters. That's what we care about, distribution first. It's not about, you know, what we put on the website, et cetera. That's not important. 
And that's also getting to your point about like, you know, it's the people in your community that impact your lives. Local really is a bridge builder for people who do not feel like their vote matters if they voted at all. They don't feel represented. They don't feel like they understand government. It feels like this inside baseball thing that isn't relevant to them. Then too often it is. Right. And yet they do have enormous power. So we really, our reporters focus on who are the people who are impacted and how do we tell their story? And that's how you back into the issue. And that's how you back into the candidate. Or if we have the opportunity to interview a candidate, which all of our reporters do all the time, what is it that makes them tick as a human? Why do they do this work? Because building trust is about knowing who these people are as people and getting away from their talking points, getting away from horse race coverage, getting away from the pay fors. How much did a bill cost? Doesn't really matter to people. It's like, is it going to fix that bridge? Is it going to fix this problem in my community or not? I don't care how many bajillions of dollars that I have no idea how to conceive of because I make $45,000 a year and struggle to like deal with inflation costs. Like, so we really start with who is the person that we're communicating with and how do we tell them the story about their life with them in it and then use that as a bridge to inform them about how they can influence change. I think it's brilliant because at the end of the day, look, I was in Nevada right in Henderson and East Las Vegas right before the election. And I was in some neighborhoods, Tara, I'll be honest with you, like, but for going out door to door, which I had not done in a very long time and I was not in shape for. um, (laughs) Emotionally or physically? Yes, yes, (laughs) completely. Yes. You know, these are not places I would have gone. And there were a couple things I learned. One was never take for granted the luck and grace that you've been, that I'd been given, certainly. But secondly, to your point that, There were so many folks in those neighborhoods who did not certainly did not expect to see me on their doorstep, but that, you know, there was one gentleman, probably African-American guy in his early 60s, I think, knocked on his door. There were two of us, one who was an in-state person and me, and the in-state person's talking about issues and issues and issues. And he's like, I don't, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I said, look, I get it. You think it's crooked? More than half the time, I'm going to agree with you, right? Like, I get it. So we just started having, we had a a little dialogue, right? Three, four, five minutes. And at the end of it, he said, all right, I'm not promising you I'm going to vote, but I'll take another look at my ballot. I got it in here. I'll take another look at it. Tara, for me, that's a win. That's a huge win. But it reinvigorated me. And then, you know, then one of our other team members saw a young woman, you know, walking down the sidewalk. We were waiting for the person who was driving the car. I'm sure you've been through all this a million times, right? And are you going to vote? Are you going to vote? She got, you know, one little kid in the stroller, another one on her hip, living with her mom, you know, was 600th in line for, you know, affordable housing is now 2000th in line, knows she's never going to get a spot, wasn't going to vote. Again, the same thing. None of this stuff works for me. None of this stuff matters to me. And, you know, our team member, who is one of our, what we call the union, which is our sort of grassroots hub, spent 10 minutes with her. And by the end of it, she created a voter, right? And so I think I feel about this stuff a little bit sort of like let a thousand flowers bloom. We're not all going to do it individually, but this stuff is all cumulative. It's all additive and it all moves in the right direction, which from our perspective, if we're all in it together, all I care about is that the good guys and gals win. I'm happy to argue with you right, about tax policy and all the other stuff. I'm happy to have those arguments with you when the time comes. Now, not the time. No, <laughs> right? no, like, we've, got, we've got bigger fish to we've fry. Got, like, much bigger, gigantic on. fish to fry. That's right. I look forward to the day when I can, like, debate angrily with you policy solutions, but we're nowhere near that. 
But this brings us back full circle to what we were talking about, too, about just sort of like D.C. and the Democratic establishment and party and things of this nature. Like these things need to break because they are not in touch with where people are like corporate media, institutional media, institutional political parties. They are out of touch with where people are and it is getting in the ground. And part of what I love so much about our model is that we're building communities. Like we are creating space for communities and we are changing the conversation at the local level. And a lot of people don't take it seriously or notice because it's not driving the national conversation on Twitter, but that's where people connect with each other. That's where people build trust with each other and trust in democracy are the two things that need saving that are on the chopping block right now in this world. And without either of them, it's a really dark and scary place that I don't think anyone wants to be in. And so I have found so much hope at just what we do at that local level and having infrastructure that continues to grow to drive those conversations and build and nurture those communities. And so people can partake in a lot of different ways. We hope to be everywhere over the next few years. We had to start in eight states, but we will grow and it's careernewsroom.com. But we really want to think about how do we just create more infrastructure that enables those kinds of relationships and those kind of conversations because so much of the chatter that we partake in, you and me, in Twitter and in the Twitterverse and, and in the political circles, in the elite circles, all of these things, a lot of that misses where people are and how they feel. And if we're more in touch with that, we are going to be better representatives, better couriers, better enablers of making things happen that are going to impact these people's lives in the way that they want. And that, I think, is the responsibility and the privilege we have. And at the end of the day, if not for that, why do any of this? It's exactly right. We would make a lot more money going corporate. And why take the time, right? Why deal with the approbation, public and private, right? Why deal with the threats? Why deal with any of it if you didn't think that there was something bigger, both at stake and worth saving? And that is why, regardless of what we disagree on policy-wise, potentially, Reed, we both know that we both have that kind of sickness in us in wanting to and believing in creating change. And it's a really powerful and it really is a privileged thing that we get to do. So I, I certainly don't take it for granted, but we have to wade through a lot of folks that are not necessarily always in it and the right reasons to get smart shit done. Well, amen to that. And certainly, you know, anytime I find out one of those people is mad at us, I'm like, great, good, 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 good. All right, Tara, and where can our folks find you on these elite social media channels? Well, as long as Twitter is alive and kicking, Tara E. M. C. G. Tara E. McG. That's my handle on Twitter. Tara E. McG underscore on Instagram, which I'm trying to do more of in case Twitter does go kaput. And then careernewsroom.com. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter. All right, gang. And as always, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Tara McGowan, thank you for joining me, gang. Go to Courier Newsroom. If it's in your state, follow it, listen to it, talk to the reporters. If it's not, demand it. Demand that they come to your state. And share it with your friends and family who live in those states. Make sure they know about it. That's right. Tara, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Reed. Great as always to talk to you. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. 
And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.